so about a year and a half ago, Megan and I, most of you probably know, Megan and I bought a, a new house. And by new, I mean a really old house that's our house that's new to us, right? And in our minds, we were going to renovate, and it was going to take about three months. You know, like you know, Russell can tell you, he knows. I, we, we thought about March, we'd be ready. A year and a half later, a year and a half later, this baby is still a work in progress. And to say that our house was less than stellar is probably an understatement. I mean, Claire Connor, uh, when she saw it, she said that she thought it was haunted. She thought it was haunted. And it really did look haunted, to be honest with you. And uh, when, when you come to the outside, the outside of the house had probably not been painted in 20 years. And so the, the paint's peeling off the walls and, you know, paint. And it, the, the last paint job was not a particularly neat one, so it's on everything wood is rotting. In our yard, it was basically a jungle of every invasive species known to man. I mean, if it, if it is an invasive species that grows in the southeastern United States, it was growing at 509 Mary Lane. We had English ivy and bamboo and periwinkle. And if you want any of that stuff, I can still hook you up because I'm fighting it tooth and nail, okay? When you walked into our front door, it was like stepping through a time warp, Right? It, it was like immediately being transported back to 1964 throughout our whole house. Our kitchen still looks this way. Like we, we legitimately have a 60s oven that we're cooking on uh, in, in our kitchen. But you know what's funny about that is when Megan and I walked into this house, we had not been there five minutes and we said, this is it. This is it. This is where we're going to raise our family. This, this is the home that God has for us. It was just a weird, and y'all know we've bought some houses in our day, okay? But, but really, we had never had this type of experience before where we just came in and we thought, this is where the Lord would have us raise our family. Like, this, 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 is, this is it, you know? And it was, it was just like this, this realization that we came to. And you know, it's a funny thing because it's, it's illustrative of a bigger principle. For us, that house was a treasure. For Claire and most sane people in the world, it's a trash dump. Right? And it's, it's odd because that's often the case, isn't it? That, that one man's treasure is another man's trash, and one man's trash is another man's treasure. And it's a picture of how God often works in his kingdom. Because if you see somebody like us buy a house like that, what do you think? You think, man, those people are backwards. Those people are, why would they not buy a new house? Why would they not buy a nicer house? Why would they not buy a fixed house? Why would they buy such a project as that? It looks like we're operating backwards. And, and very often for us, from human perspective, looking onto what God is doing, it appears as though God is working backwards. If we were to summarize the whole story, and that's what we're doing in the big story, right? We're, we're zooming out and saying, all right, what's the storyline of the Bible, and how does all of this fit together? And if we were to summarize all of the, the, the storyline of the Bible, we might summarize it like this, that God is building his kingdom, and he's filling the earth with all of his glory. We could summarize the Bible that way. Literally everything in the Bible contributes and, and is moving toward this idea that God is building his kingdom, and he's filling the earth with his glory. Now, if you were God and that was your mission and that's what you were doing, how would you go about it? Because I can tell you how Cody Hell would go about it. I would find, I'm, I'm going to change my language since we have Marines. I got corrected in the first service. I, I said Navy SEALs, forgive me. It, it, I would go and I would find a few men, a few proud men, right? I would find, I would find some Marines of the faith. 
You know what I'm saying? The guys that look nice with their shirt tucked in, that are strong and smart and got everything uh, figured out, have all the books of the Bible memorized, who, who have lived out this, this mighty faith in a public way. Like, that's who I'm going with. If, 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 if I put this in the Old Testament context, I'm not choosing Israel, I'm choosing Egypt. You know what I'm saying? I'm not choosing Israel, I'm choosing Egypt. G- give me the people with the mighty military. G- give me the people with all the chariots. Give me the people with all the gold. Give me the people with all the power, all the influence. Give me those people. Don't give me these punks in the desert. Right? But God works backwards. God works backwards. What, what, what God does is God finds those people that it seems totally incomprehensible that they could be worth anything at all. And he says, that's going to be the dwelling place of my glory. That's going to be the dwelling place of my glory. That, that God is building his kingdom, and he is building his kingdom out of dilapidated old houses that everybody else wished would just be dozed. That's us. That, that God is building his kingdom out of the reject pile of the world. And he's making those rejects, those dilapidated old houses, those houses that everybody else in the neighborhood looks down on and wish would just go away to help the property values. You, me, and he says, in you I am going to write my name and I'm going to make you the dwelling place of my glory. No place in the scripture is this clearer than in Joshua chapter 2. In Joshua chapter 2, you have the people of God, and they're on the the far bank of the Jordan. They're about to go in, and they're making their final preparations to go in and to take the promised land. You know, you remember back in Numbers 13 when we preached through it, they sent 12 spies ahead of them, right? And out of the 12 spies, how many of them were faithful? Two, right? And and so I think in Joshua 2, you get a little bit of that, you know, fool me once, shame on me, or shame on you, fool me twice, shame on me. And so this time Joshua's like, I am not sending in 12, I'm sending in two. There's going to be two faithful, I'll go with the two, I'm going to send in two. So he sends in two spies, and the spies end up in the absolute last place that you would expect the uh, people of God to end up. Josephus is pretty diplomatic, if you will, he was a first century Jewish historian, he's pretty diplomatic when he frames up where they were, he says they go to an inn. They didn't go to an inn, y'all. They went to a brothel. They went to a brothel. You might say it was like a tavern slash brothel, but the, the spies of Israel end up in the middle of a brothel, hanging out in the home of a harlot, Rahab. Now, what would you expect to come next in the story? Probably what I'm thinking is this is where they're supposed to like spray paint an X and say this is where the judgment of God should fall, Right? We would think that the next thing, if, if the people of God have inher- in, encountered a sinner like a harlot, like a prostitute, that the next thing that might come into play is the judgment of God falling upon her and her family and all the people that are around her. But you know what instead? God says this dilapidated old house, th- th- this reject from the world, this lowly woman on the totem pole of society, I'm going to put my glory here. I'm going to put my glory here. In fact, the Bible upholds uh, Rahab in the story from Joshua chapter 2 as being one of the watershed moments of understanding faith and what saving faith looks like in all of the Bible. It's, it's mentioned in numerous occasions. We're going to look at three this morning in the New Testament where Rahab is held up as an example of what faith should be. So what I want us to see this morning are the characteristics of saving faith. The first characteristic I want you to see is that faith 
works from the beginning. Faith works from the beginning. All right, so James mentions Rahab in his famous uh, uh, treatise in chapter 2 where he's talking about faith and works. Listen to what he says. He says, and in the same way was not also Rahab the prostitute justified by works. Now, if you're used to Pauline theology and you spend all of your energy and time reading Paul's epistles, you, you read this and you, you compare this to Ephesians chapter 2 and it feels off. Because Paul, Paul says salvation is not by works. Salvation is not by works. So no man can, Salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, right? This is what Paul teaches us. And then we read in James chapter 2 and he says, this prostitute Rahab, she was justified by her works. What's he talking about? He, he clarifies it. When she received the messengers and sent them out by another way. Verse 26. For as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. So what James is, the, the case that James is making is that Rahab received a belief system. She, she became convinced in faith, convicted in faith. She didn't earn it. Her, her, her justification as far as what she, the, the faith that she obtained was not obtained because she did all the right things and followed all the right rules. What, what happened is, is her faith was expressed through these works. Because of what she believed, because of who she loved, because of what she became convinced of, that's what leads her to the actions that she takes with the spies. That's why she protects them. That's why she shields them from the king, because of what she believes. So her faith isn't earned by work, but her faith does work. It is expressed in works. It is generated in works. And so here we have Rahab, and she is the picture of a new believer, someone who is raw and, and undeveloped and unmatured in her faith. And here from the very beginning of her faith, from her earliest days, we see her applying that faith to her life so that her faith is expressed in a series of works. So much so that James, when he's teaching on this, upholds her and says, this is what faith looks like. This is what living faith, sincere faith, genuine faith, working faith looks like. So, so where is it that we see Rahab's faith working? Well, first of all, what we see is that faith has to make a choice. Faith has to make a choice. That one of the ways that we see Rahab's faith being worked out in her life is through the choices that she makes. Can you imagine? All right, so Rahab, socially, there is no one beneath her. No one beneath her. Okay, first of all, she's a woman. Women did not have standing in society. Second, top, second of all, she's a single woman. A single woman certainly didn't have standing in society. But beyond all of that, she was a hooker. She was a hooker. She, she was at the, the bottom. She was lived in a house of irrepute. She was a woman of irrepute. She was the kind of person that when you start walking down the sidewalk, if you see her coming, you switch to the other side of the street. She was the kind of person that held no credibility, no standing, no respect, no, no admiration. All right, so imagine being a woman like that, and the king, the king sends diplomats to your house. The king sends messengers to your house. He says, look, I've heard that you got some people, some spies from Israel. I know you're not smart. He talks to her this way, right? Like, I know you're probably not smart enough to put all this together, but they're spies. Okay, and, and they, they've come here to undermine what we're doing. They're, they've come here to destroy us. So how about this? You turn over the spies to us. We'll let you go. We'll, we'll turn a blind eye to this whole hooking thing that you got going on. And, uh, and we'll all go our merry, lay, merry way and be, and be quite happy. And you know what she does? 
she looks back to him and she doesn't blink. When those, when those messengers come from the king, that's decision time for her, right? That, that's where she has to decide, where does my allegiance lie? Does my allegiance lie to the king that I've always uh, submitted to, the, the nation that I've always lived for, the heritage that I've always had? Does, does it lie with the gods that I've always followed? Or, or I've heard the reputation of this other god. I've heard the stories of this other god. Do I think that there's a possibility that this is the right way? Who is I going to give my loyalties to? Am I going to give it to these spies that I don't know or to the king that I've always followed? It's decision time. And she does not blink. Unflappable, obviously an intelligent and articulate woman. She is able to speak plainly and powerfully. And she, she says, well, I don't know what you're talking about. They, they were here, yeah, they, they came by. You know, most of the business merchants, when they're away from their families and they come through town, you know they all stop at my house, right? It's just mark of the industry. But they, so, so they were all here, but they scurried right out the gate as soon as they had done their thing and they were off and about their life. And so, so this is what she does. She, she doesn't just let it rest there. Then she advises the king's advisors. She said, if I were you and I had to answer the king, I'll tell you what I'd do. I'd run as far out there as I could go. I would chase them out the gates. I would chase them as far as the Jordan River. And surely if you chase after them, if you pursue them, if you find them, you, you'll find them out there, right? She's making her choices. She's making her choices. Brothers and sisters, that's what faith looks like. That's what faith looks like. It's not faith. Faith. It's not faith to try to uh, find common ground between two kingdoms. That's not faith. It's not faith to try to be neutral like Switzerland so that whoever wins the war, you can come out and choose the winning side in the end. Sarah does that in our house, right? Like we watch BattleBots. I've been pretty transparent about our addiction to BattleBots in the Hill household. And this is what happens in whoever wins, like we, we all pick our robot before the fight begins. So that we, you know, then there's the winners and there's losers at the end. But Sarah has this bad habit by about three quarters of the way through the fat fight when it's apparent who's going to win the fight. She says, well, you know, Dad, I was really on Shatter the whole time. You know, like I, I, don't, I, I didn't want any part of Endgame, you know. And, uh, and so we're, we're trying to teach her, like, it's okay. It's okay to lose. Just choose. But that's what we try to do in the, kingdoms of, in, in the kingdom of, of the earth versus the kingdom of God, I think. It's a picture. We, we, we want to live for now in case now is all there is. And we still want to have a relationship with God in case, in case the kingdom of heaven does turn out to be real. And so we keep one foot in both kingdoms. We're trying to remain neutral so that we don't have to choose sides. But brothers and sisters, that's not faith. That's not faith. I wonder. I wonder for how many of us we say that God is king with our lips. But we live like America is our kingdom. How many of us say in the words that we use, in the speech that we have, in the language that we use with our kids, in the prayers that we pray at the dinner table, that God, you are our king and we choose you, but yet in our lives, the way that we spend our time and the way that we spend our money and the way that we spend our energy and the things that we devote ourselves to, if you were to really look at it, it would appear as though America is your kingdom. No, 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 no. You have to choose. You have to choose. Jesus said, this day you must choose who you will serve. If you are lukewarm, I will spit you out of my mouth. I would rather you be hot or cold. That's what faith is. That's what faith is. The second way we see Rahab's faith working is that faith abandons all else. 
faith abandons all it. So, so faith makes a choice and then faith abandons all else. There's nothing left. All right, so my grandmother, I've ta- I think I've mentioned this maybe before to you. I'm from this particular area, like th- this, this beautiful metropolis out here in White Plains, Alabama. That's a little place I like to call home. And my family goes back here quite a ways. And so one of the things that my grandmother would do whenever she had me as a captive audience, particularly as a teenager, she drove this old Buick Park Avenue, you know, and she drove it very, very slow. And so we would ride through all the country in this Buick Park Avenue, and she would point out every cemetery, every place a relative was buried. Like, I would remember all these things, right? And then she would tell me stories about, like, the farm and what my great-grandparents did and what my great-great-grandparents did. And she would say, I want you to buy this property one day, you know, all these kinds of things. What was she doing? She was giving me a sense of my heritage, Right? She, she would go through these things, and it was something that you were supposed to be proud of. It, it was a place that, you, that helped give you your identity. It was a reminder of where you came from. It was a call to never leave behind your roots, to no matter where God took you, no matter what God did in your life, to always be grounded in who you were originally and where you came from originally. Now, I want you to think about Rahab. All she's ever known is Jericho. All she's ever known are the gods of Jericho. All she's ever known is the way of life in Jericho. Jericho was a prosperous city. The the walls around Jericho were famous. You know, if you think about the Titanic as the unsinkable ship, the walls of Jericho were thought for centuries to be the impenetrable walls. It was the the kind of place that you, you really wanted to live. And so when she's making this choice, the choice isn't just between her king and God. The choice is, am I going to, the the question is, am I going to abandon my heritage? Am I going to abandon everything that I've ever known? And she knows that if the spies are right, if she lets them loose and they are right, it's literally the destruction of everybody else in the city. She knows that. She's making her decisions, working from that piece of information, working from that piece of knowledge. She knows it's going to destroy them. You see, that's what faith looks like. That's what faith looks like. Faith is abandoning everything that you've ever lived for because of what you now believe. It's abandoning all the things that you used to value because you have found a higher value. It's abandoning the priorities you used to hold because you have found a higher priority. It's abandoning all those things that you organized your schedule around and organized your energy around and organized your budget around. It's, it's abandoning all of those other things because you have found something that is singularly worthy, singularly greater than all of those things added together in some. Reminds me of what Jesus says in Matthew chapter 10. I'll put this here on the screen. Verse 34, he says, Do not think that I have come to bring peace to the earth. I have not come to bring peace but a sword. For I have come to set a man against his father, and a daughter against her mother, and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And a person's enemies will be those of his own household. Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. This value language, right? Whoever finds his life will lose it. And whoever loses his life will find it. What's he talking about? He's talking about a radical reconfiguration of our value system. 
All of these things that he's talking about are those things that you live for, your family. Like, if anybody can persuade you to believe something other than what you believe, it's your family, it's your kin, it's your heritage. It's, it's, it's that place where your identity originated. And so Jesus is saying, look, you're going to have to choose, many of you. Am I going to honor, am I going to obey my mom and dad? Am I going to go the, for the life that they've set before me? Am I going to live by the values that they've entrusted to me? Am I going to live by what I've witnessed in them? Or am I going to give myself wholly over to Christ? See, to follow after Jesus, to follow after Jesus is to reverse the ideals and values of this world. To follow after Jesus is to follow and to live for the exact way that appears opposite to literally everybody else you know. And for many of us, for many of us, the people closest to us can't understand. The people closest to us can't make heads or tails out of the decisions that we're making to forsake this life and to leave behind all the treasures that we can have here and all of the, the things that we can pile up in building our kingdom right here and right now because they look at it and it doesn't make sense, but it's because we live by faith and not by sight. It's because we don't live for right here. We don't live for right now. We are living for somewhere greater. We are living for some time later. Right? What do the values in your life look like? What do your priorities say? Are you willing to back down from where God is calling you to do because of pressure from family? Because of pressure from your heritage? Are, are you excusing your unfaithfulness, shifting blame to your upbringing and to your heritage? Y'all, the call to walk by faith is a call to abandon all of that. It is a call to abandon all of that because in Christ, whatever you lose, you still come out with a net gain. So long as I have Christ, if my mother abandons me, I still come out ahead. If my father abandons me, I still come out ahead. If my children abandon me, I still come out ahead. If my sister, if my brother, if my boss, if my friends, if this society, if my income, if all of that melts away, I come out with a net gain because I have Christ. So I will not try to save my life here. I will lose it. I will offer it up to the King of Kings. That's faith. The third way I think we see faith working in Rahab's life is faith takes risks. Faith takes risks. You understand that what she's doing is committing treason. You understand that? I mean, we read these stories and we don't think about the, the enormity of the decisions that are being made. But Rahab is here and Rahab is committing treason. She is not just going to die. She's going to be tortured. She's going to die a long, drawn-out death, a public death. She is going to bring greater shame upon her family than being a prostitute would bring. In fact, being a prostitute in her day was likely celebrated and perhaps even religious. But not treason. Not treason. Making the decision to, to commit treason was making the decision to literally risk everything that she had. It was making the decision to hold up anything that she valued, anything that was significant, even the very pride of her family, and to make an offering and to say, to say, Lord, Lord, I will risk all of this because I believe that you are true. Faith, by its very definition, requires risk. You understand that? Faith, by its very definition, requires risk. If what you're doing doesn't make you nervous, if what you do, if there's no trepidation in the call of God, what he's calling you to do, if, if, there's, no, if there's no anxiety at all at what you're supposed to do, that's not faith. 
That's not faith. That means that you believe that you're totally safe. That means that you believe that you can handle this in your own strength. That means that you can make all the decisions and not have anything to worry about. That it's all going to work out just fine because you've got a wrap on the situation. Faith means taking steps where you can't see where the step is. Faith means running after Christ when you don't know where he's running. See, I think one of the, way, one of the things that we say is we, we, we gather for ourselves our friends into an echo chamber. And we rant about all of the debauchery and degradation in our society. And we talk about all of the sin that's out there and all of the problems that are out there. And we call that the expression of our faith. But y'all, that's not faith. All of them are standing there and they're clapping for you. And they're cheering you on. And everything that you say, you know they're going to cheer you on. You know they're going to clap for you. But that's not faith. That's moral grandstanding. Faith is when you are willing to share your faith with somebody, even at the, with the realization that you may, it may cost you the relationship. It's the willingness to stand up for the truth at work, even when you know that it may cost you your paycheck. It's going wherever God calls you and doing whatever God sends you to do, even when you realize that it's going to invite the ridicule of your mom and dad into your life when you take their grandbabies away. That's faith. Faith is risk-taking. Faith is risk-taking, but it's hedging your bets because you're going all in with the glory and sovereignty of the Lord. What are we supposed to make out of this lie? It's interesting, commentators... They're, they're split on it. Universally, the commentators would say that this lie that Rahab tells is a, an act of stupendous faith, of uh, an act of stupendous bravery, something that happens in the heat of the moment. But what they can't decide is if the lie is ethical or not. Uh, on one hand, you have people, and uh, John Calvin kind of fa- falls on, on this side, and he would say to, to believe that there's a lie that's acceptable is to misunderstand how much God loves the truth and how much God stands for the truth. And what they would say is that she, she tells this lie, but if she would have acted in even greater faith, that she would have known that she could have told the truth and God would have still provided a way out. Still on the other side of the argument by, by people that I, I deep, deeply respect, people like Bruce Waltke, they would say that it was an act of deception that's akin to, to war. Like, like when you go off to battle and you act like you're going to flank them from the left and instead you, you send them to the right. It's, it's something that's actually a, a, way, a tactic, a, a, a deception that would be considered ethical and honorable, particularly in a holy war like this. And I've thought a lot about it, and to be honest with you, I don't know where I fall. But here's what I think this shows us. It shows us the complexity of faith in a fallen world. You're never going to have faith where there is no doubt. We want to live in a black and white world. This is where so much of our legalism comes from, right? This is where so much of our, our, our licentiousness comes from. Uh, we make a decision. Either everything is acceptable or only these things are acceptable and all these things are having to be hated. And both of those are attempts at living in a black and white world where I can always know what the right thing is. But the truth is, is we live in a world because of the curse that is covered in gray. And here is this woman and she is making a decision and she's in the crux of the moment and she has to choose this day who she will serve and who she will devote her life to. And it's complicated and it's complex and it's difficult and it's it's messy. And if you're going to have a working faith, if you're going to have a faith that, that is truly given over to the Lord, yours is going to be complex. The second way that uh, we see, the second characteristic of saving faith that we see is that faith forms in the heart. Faith forms in the heart. Look at uh, verses 8 through 11, and you'll see what I'm talking about. Before the men lay down, she came up to them on the roof and said to them. So here what we're seeing is it's giving us the why behind what she said. 
This is why she arrived at the decision that she arrived at to disobey the king and to hide the men, to, to give the deception. She says, I know that the Lord has given you the land and that the fear of you has fallen upon us. Now, fear is what? Is it outward or inward? Fear is inward, right? Fear is an issue of the heart. So she's already talking about the fame of God, the reputation of God has preceded, uh, preceded him and it has come to the people of Jericho and having come to the Jer people of Jericho, it has melted their hearts. It has come to their hearts. It has, it has struck fear in them. And that all the inhabitants of the land will melt away, there it is again, before you. Verse 10, for we have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea before you when he came out of Egypt and when you, what you did to the two kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan, to Sion and Og, whom you devoted to destruction. And as soon as we heard it, our hearts, there it is again, melted and there was no spirit left in any man because of you. For the Lord your God, he is God in the heavens above and on the earth beneath. So here, here she is and she's saying that there's been things that have been going on in our hearts here in Jericho. There, there, there's been a fear of the Lord that has struck our hearts. There's been a formation of, of concern in our hearts. And for me, for me, for Rahab, there has been the formation of faith in my heart because our hearts melted before the Lord and I realized that there is none that is greater than the Lord in the heavens or on the earth beneath. I came to the realization that there is no God like this God, that there is no king like this king. And because my heart had melted, because I became convinced inwardly, my faith in him was formed. See, when God melts your heart, there's, all, there's always one, or one of two responses. There's always one of two responses. You either respond the way that the king of Jericho responded, or you respond the way that Rahab responded. The way that, how did king of, king of Jericho respond? The king of Jericho responded by, by rallying the troops, by, by flexing his muscle, by showing how big and how bad he was, by saying, I will preserve our way of life. I can defend our country. I can, I can make sure that we're strong enough and good enough and able enough. We have stood for centuries. Why will we not stand for centuries more? I will stand against the Lord. I will stay in control. For many of you, for many of you, you come every week and the Lord melted your heart and he has shown you that you are insufficient. You have come under the conviction of the Spirit of God and yet you have not been saved. You have been resistant to that salvation. You have been resistant to God's call on your life. And it's because, it's because you are trying to be strong enough. You are trying to show that you are in control. You're trying to prove that you are the king. You are trying to show that you don't need his help or anybody else's help for that matter because you're man enough or you're woman enough on your own. That's exactly what the king of Jericho is doing. It's exactly what the king of Jericho is doing. The other response is the response of lowly Rahab. The response of lowly Rahab, one person in all the city of Jericho who said, I melt before the Lord and so I need him. It's a beautiful confession of faith uh, that you have there at the end of verse 11. He says, he is God above in the heavens above and on the earth beneath. What is she saying? We're, really, we're literally having her here professing her faith in Yahweh. She says, I've worshipped gods all of my life, but I've never found one like this before. I've served a king all of my life, but I've never found one this great before. That here is a God above every God of the heavens. Here is a king above every king of the earth. Here is a sovereign who is truly worthy of my devotion. Can you imagine how complicated love would have been for Rahab? Rahab was the person with whom husbands cheated on their wives. 
She witnessed betrayal firsthand every day. She witnessed adultery, participated in adultery every single day. Her gods never intervened. In fact, it's likely that her gods actually participated, that they were willing participants. You would go to the temple of Baal and you would have sex with a temple prostitute that you might arouse Baal, that he might reign on the earth. And so here's a God that participated, but now, now, now she has found a God who is morally righteous and holy and upright, who will not participate, but instead will intervene, who will not stand for injustice, who will not allow this nonsense to go up. And he is above every God. He is above every king. He is the sovereign over all nations, over all peoples, over her. And so she, a Canaanite woman, uses the covenant name of the Israelite God, Yahweh, That's as close as you're going to get in the Old Testament for somebody saying, Dad, Father. She had found one worthy of her love, you see. She had found one worthy of her devotion. And whatever it cost her, wherever it led her, he got it all. This morning, I wonder how many of you have been unwilling to bring all of your heart and all of your mind and all of your strength and submit it to the Lord and say, God, I want you to change my life. I don't want in control. I don't want to keep doing things my way. I don't want to keep living by my strength. I don't want to, I don't have to be the ruler of all the things that are me. No, Lord, I bring all of you, me to you. And I ask you, Lord, to transform me, to make me new, to make me different, to make me, to make me somebody else, because you are the one that is worthy of my love. But what's interesting here is that Rahab isn't just contrasted with the response of the king of Jericho. She's contrasted with the response of the people of Israel. Notice how she's always talking past tense, right? She's always talking past tense. For we have heard. We heard of what you did way back 40 years ago at the Red Sea. We heard what you did 40 years ago in the wilderness with the defeat of the king of the Amorite kings. We heard about that all, and my heart melted then. My heart melted then. When I heard the reports, my heart melted. So you have Israel. Israel witnessed the power of God. Israel was delivered by the power of God. They didn't hear about the splitting of the Red Sea. They saw it. They walked on the dry dirt. Israel had been provided by the hand of God, fed bread out of the sky. They didn't hear about it. They saw it. They ate it. They consumed it. They had drank the water that came out of the rock. They saw God slaughter the Amorite kings that should have been able to easily overtake them. They witnessed it. The glory cloud of the Lord himself dwelt right there in their midst. They followed it. And yet they got right to the edge of the promised land and they said, God will not deliver us. We do not believe. And here's a woman. A woman living in a brothel on the other side of the wall of Jericho. A Canaanite woman, a reject woman at the bottom of society. And she didn't see it. She didn't experience it. She didn't, wasn't delivered by. She heard. She only heard. And she said, I have never heard of a God in the heavens as great as this God. I have never seen a king on the earth as great as this king. He gets it all. It reminds of, of Matthew chapter 8. And you have this, the Gentile centurion, right? Another Gentile. The Gentile centurion comes to Jesus and he says, one of my servants is ill. You are his only hope. Will you heal him? And Jesus says, yeah, I'll come to your house and I'll heal, I'll heal your servant. He says, no, 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 no. I know who you are and I've heard about what you do. You don't have to walk in. You 
you can just say it. You can just say the word. And if you'll just say it, he'll be healed. And Jesus marveled, for he had not seen faith like that in all of Galilee. This is the kind of faith that causes Jesus to stop and marvel, brothers and sisters. This is the kind of faith that causes Jesus to stop and marvel. See, why did God send the two spies into Canaan? God knew Jericho better than the Jerichoites or whatever you would call them, better than they would know. He designed it, y'all. He already knew he was going to crush the walls. He already knew he was going to... Why did he send them over there? Why didn't he just send all the people and say, all right, go, let's do this, let's get this over with. Do you know why? I'm convinced of it. Because he had a daughter in there. Did y'all get that? He had a daughter in there. Do you know what God's very first act was in the promised land? To save. To save a Canaanite woman. She herself was the fulfillment of a promise. God had not just promised to give them the promised land. God had promised that through the promised land, he would make them, the descendants of Abraham, a blessing to all nations. And here she was as the very representative of the nations. And God was not willing that one person of faith perish. Just one prostitute was enough to go in after. See, the kind of people that we walk on the other street to avoid are the very kinds of people that God seeks. And there's hope and a responsibility that comes with that. If there is hope for you. Maybe you've aborted a child and you carry the secret shame with you. And you hear all the things and it adds to your, your, your feeling of condemnation. Can I tell you something? You are exactly the kind of house, the kind of dilapidated house that everybody else gives up on. But God tells his glory to dwell right there. Maybe you have a, a past that is checkered and littered with homosexuality. And you would say, there is no place for me in the church. There is no place for me in the kingdom of God. Can I tell you, you are exactly, exactly the kind of person that God has come after and said, you are welcome in my kingdom and you will be a conduit of my glory. Just one. And y'all, what if that was the driving mission of our, the, the driving passion of our mission strategy? If there's just one. If there's just one, God, I know we're supposed to connect. I know we're supposed to disciple, but we've got to go. Because over there in Africa, over there in, in Swaziland, over there in Kenya, over in, in China, there's one. I know there's one. One of your sons, one of your daughters is there. And so, God, take me. Let me go on the other wall, side of the walls of Jericho to deliver them and bring them into your house. Y'all, God is already drawing people to his name as he's sending us out. But we can't go and lose there's no failing in this. God is doing the work. Brings us to the final characteristic of faith. Faith lives for the future. Faith lives for the future. If you stop and you think about every decision that Rahab makes, every decision makes her life harder in the present. Every decision that she makes puts her on shakier ground. What if the spies were discovered by the king, by the king's men? She would have been executed right there on the spot. She's adding stress. She could just hand them over and the king's people would take care of the rest and it would be off her. She wouldn't have to worry about it anymore. She could go back about, about her day. All she does is make decisions that continually complicate her life, make her life more difficult, add, add greater stress and greater drama. Why? She was willing to risk right now because of what she was convinced was coming one day. She was convinced of what was coming one day. 
She was convinced that the Lord was going to send his people and he was going to hand over this land. He said, we already, she said, we already know that the Lord has given this land to you and that the Lord has given you this land. I want to be a part of that. I want to come in. I want to enjoy that with you. And so they tell her. They tell her there in verse 18, you shall tie the scarlet cord in the window through you, which you let us down. And you shall gather into your house your father and mother, your brothers and all your father's household. It, it's, it's reminiscent of, exod, of the Exodus when the, you have the Passover, isn't it? God tells his children, he says, take blood, the blood of the lamb and paint over the doorposts of your house. And wherever there is blood on the doorposts of that house, my wrath, the, the angel of death, will pass over. And wherever it is not found, they will be destroyed. And they will face the condemnation that is due them as sinners against the almighty God. And here is this woman, one woman in all of Jericho. And he says, put the scarlet ribbon up in the, up in the window and the judgment of the Lord will pass over you that if you will trust, in other words, if you will trust, if you will trust in the provision of God for your salvation, if you will put all of your hope in the provision of God for your salvation, God's going to completely change everything about your life. God's going to redefine who you are. God is going to save you and God is going to bring you into his kingdom. You see what we have here, what we have here in Rahab is a, a branch off the Gentile vine being grafted into the vine of Israel according to Romans 11. We have her being grafted and now she has a new identity. She would go on to live, to live as an Israelite for the rest of her life. How do I know that? Glad you would ask. You know those genealogies that you always skip over in your Bible reading plan? There's one in the beginning of Matthew. And it's not just any genealogy. It's the genealogy of the Lord Jesus. The genealogy of the Lord Jesus. And it shows us his heritage. It shows us his ancestors, particularly on his dad's side. And look at, look at what it says in verse 5 of Matthew chapter 1. And Salmon, the father of Boaz, by Rahab. Man, can we get three exclamation points right there? And Boaz, the father of Obed by Ruth, and Obed, the father of Jesse, and Jesse, the father of David the king, and David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah. So sometimes genealogies just skip a bit. We're going to take this at face value, okay? So here what we have. We have here a harlot, a prostitute on the other side of, a, of Jericho, not an Israelite, a Canaanite living in Jericho. And she becomes the great-great-grandmother of of David himself. She becomes the great 24 times over again of the Lord Jesus, the Savior of the world that God was going to bring. God brought her into his kingdom and he changed everything about her life, everything about her future. He took a harlot and he made her holy. This is exactly what God does right now. This is exactly what God can do in your life. This is exactly what God can do in my life. God takes these dilapidated old houses that are us. He, he takes all of us with our siding falling off and our, our lives coming apart and the kind of people that everybody else wants to discard and bulldoze. He says, come to me. Come to me and I'll make you new. Come to me and I will restore you. Come to me and I will put my name on your house and I will let my glory dwell there. Will you come by faith? Will you come by faith? See, she had no idea that one day she would be remembered. Hebrews chapter 11, by faith, in the hall of faith, 
Rahab the prostitute did not perish with those who were disobedient because she had given a friendly welcome to the spies. Faith founded in God is never proven foolish. Let's pray together this morning. Thank you for watching or listening to one of our sermons. We would love to have the opportunity to connect with you one-on-one. We are not a perfect church, but we are a joyful church, and we want to help you increase your joy in Christ. We would love for you to come and worship with us one day soon. You'll be able to find information about our worship services, about who we are, what we believe, what we do, what we're hoping to accomplish on our website at ironcity.org. And we would invite you to go and to check out all the information there. We look forward to seeing you soon. 